You have your Bibles, turn to the book of Zechariah, the next to last book in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. And we'll begin our study in Zechariah in chapter number one tonight. Y'all going to have to bear with me because my printer broke down today and I wasn't able to print any notes. So we're going to be winging it to some degree here, but, but hopefully I can remember what I studied and what I've already known from the study of Zechariah. Zechariah happens to be one of my favorite books because there's some passages in there that just uh, uh, give us insight into the future like no other book in the Bible about the millennium, about exactly where Christ is going to come when he comes back to this earth. And uh, there's, there's some exciting things in here as we, as we uh, go through this book. Uh, uh, if you remember, to sort of set the setting, the Israelites had gone into the Babylonian captivity. They had, they had lived wickedly, and we went through all of the prophets or the minor prophets where they were being warned that judgment was coming. And finally, that judgment came uh, from the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, he came in and he destroyed most of Israel. He destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple, and most of the Israelites went into captivity. Well, God had told them how long they were going to be in captivity. They were going to be in captivity for 70 years, if you remember. And you remember when we were in the book of Daniel, Daniel realized that those 70 years were about up and he began to pray that that captivity would end. And I, I, you know, I don't know how many other people were praying. I doubt there were many others who were praying that prayer. But Daniel prayed it and God answered that prayer of Daniel and, and uh uh, the Persians came in, defeated the Babylonians, and in the second year of Darius, uh, he allowed Cyrus of Persia, he allowed the uh, Israelites to go, a remnant of the Israelites, to go back into uh, their homeland, back to Judah. Actually, all of them could have gone back. Only, scholars tell us only about 35,000 of them went back because they had you know, establish their lives in a foreign land and they didn't want to pick up roots and go back down there. But there were these zealot Jews who, who uh, uh, decided to go back and they got back down there and they didn't like what they saw. They saw the temple in ruins and they saw the city of Jerusalem in ruins and they just said to themselves, this is an impossible task. It's just not going to happen. And so what they did, they went back and and found themselves, I guess, went back to some of the older homes that had been destroyed and they rebuilt those homes and, and they were taking care of their own personal lives and they were ne neglecting the life of, of uh, or, or neglecting the work of God. And so God sent three prophets to this remnant of Israelites and to speak to Zerubbabel, who was the governor who uh, Darius appointed to, to lead this group, uh, uh, Joshua, the high priest, uh, who is a type of Jesus Christ, and Zerubbabel's in the line of Jesus Christ, so we get some prophetic uh, uh, symbolism just in those, those names and who they are. And uh, so he went to not only encourage them, but also this remnant of people. And he sends three prophets, three prophets to speak to the Israelites, to encourage them. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the last three prophets that we look at here in the Old Testament. Well, we looked at Haggai, and actually, as he finishes his last prophecy, a month before that, Zechariah speaks his first prophecy. We see that, if you look down in verse number one, 
it says in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And if you look back to Haggai in verse chapter 2, verse 10, it says in the 24th day of the ninth month of the second year of Darius. And so he actually speaks this a month before Haggai's prophecy. And you remember what Haggai's prophecy was. His prophecy was this, or his word to the people were this. You know, yeah, the temple's in shambles. Yeah, Jerusalem's in shambles. But it's not really about the temple. It's about the Lord. And the Lord's going to be present in Zerubbabel's temple, just like he was present in Solomon's temple. And not only is he going to be present in, in Zerubbabel's temple, as he was in Solomon's temple, he's going to be present in the millennial temple. And that's this, on this very spot where you guys are you're back in the land, and this is precious land to the Lord because one day the Lord is going to set up his millennial rule here on earth. Actually, his rule on earth forever is going to be set up in the city of Jerusalem. And so this is, this is precious land and what you're doing is a major task. So, so you need to get back to work and you need to, 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 uh, to complete the work that you've started. So that's basically the message. And it comes to, from Haggai and then... Now Zechariah is going to give them a message. Now, there are a lot of Zechariahs in the Bible. Uh, if you go and chase down the name Zechariah, you'll see a lot of the priests were Zechariah. And then you have this prophet Zechariah. He's different from the priest Zechariah, but uh, the Zechariah priest. But uh, uh, he's, he's, Jesus was familiar with him because you remember Jesus spoke of this Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, which we see here in, in verse number one, he says the one who was killed between the temple wall and the altar. So we know that Zechariah's message is going to be received, but at some point he's actually going to be killed. That's interesting side note because it seems like this remnant of people are hearing the Lord, but I don't know that they really are. Uh, their forefathers were wicked and they were raised in a wicked land by wicked people. And now they've come back to the land. And I think there's some element of, of uh, godliness in these people. But in the end, Zechariah is killed, which kind of tells me that the history of the Jews really hadn't changed when this remnant came back to this land, they still were in rebellion against God. And it's amazing to me the patience that God has with these people. And I don't, I'm not picking on Jews when I say that because it's amazing to me the patience God has with me, the patience he has with all of his people because we're all rebels at heart. We're all stiff-necked like the Jews. And so anyway, you got Zechariah says in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. So he had prophet's blood running in his veins. Edo was a prophet. Now it's really interesting if you take these, the meaning of these three, three names. Uh, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Uh, Berechiah means Jehovah blesses. Edo means the appointed time. So there's a message. It's really the message of the book of Zechariah. The Lord is, will bless you in his appointed time. He will bless the people of Israel. The Lord will remember to bless the people of Israel in his appointed time. 
And that's true for all of us. In God's appointed time, we, we're going to be blessed. If you're a child of God, it might not seem like it right now, but you're going to be greatly blessed. Then he, he, he begins, to, begins his message, and he, you know, he kind of rebukes them at the beginning of the message. He says in verse number two, the Lord has been very, very angry with your fathers. I mean, that's the reason they went into captivity. Because of their wickedness, because of their idolatry, the Lord was, they weren't, you know, they, they were the apple of God's eye in one sense, but they had lost favor with the Lord, and the Lord was very angry with them, and so he put them into captivity for 70 years. And, and what the message that he's going to give them in the first part of this book, or the first part of this chapter, is that, hey, unless you repent of your father's sins, and you're not responsible for your father's sins, but unless you re repent of your father's sins, the same thing that happened to them is going to happen to you. The Lord's going to be very, very angry with you. And so part of repenting would be to do the Lord's will. And what was the Lord's will? Not that they take care of totally of, of their own personal needs, but that they serve the Lord and do his, his bidding too. So he says, the Lord has been very angry with your fathers. Then in verse number three, he says, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. And again, I've said this on several occasions. When you see Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, we're talking about the power of God. The power of God, the sovereignty of God over the affairs of man. He has the power to do anything he wants, anytime he wants. And all of these disasters and all of these armies that are moving about throughout the world and all of these wars that have taken place, what he's saying to them, I'm in charge of all of that. And I can bring one down on you too. I can bring a disaster down on you and I can bring an army down on you and I can deliver you from an army. And that's what I've done at this point. God has delivered them. He's had the power to deliver them. But he says, don't be like your fathers. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, the one who has the power over your life. He says, return to me. And I love this. And I will return to you. That is a timeless message right there. God is all, God never moves away from us. He's always there. We're always running away from God. We're always turning to the world. We're always uh, uh, getting as far away from God as, as maybe, as we, I want to say as, as, as we possibly can. But I don't think sometimes we do that. Uh, I think we do that in ignorance a lot of times. We don't realize how far we've, drifted from the Lord. And so when those disasters come into our lives, like came upon Israel, when Babylon came down and took them in captivity, when we see a disaster that comes into our life, then, then we want to say, what is God saying in this? And I can tell you what he's always saying, re, re, return to me and I will return to you. I will become your, the Lord of hosts. I'll have power over your life and power over your affairs and, and things will work out much better than they have in the past. Then he says, and I mean, it kind of reminds me of Revelation over and over again. What does he tell these seven churches? He tells them to repent. You know, you've left your first love. You, you're, you're, you say you, you have a name that's alive, but you're dead. Uh, you're lukewarm. And, and the answer to it always is to repent, to turn back around and turn back to the Lord. And so he tells these Israelites that same old timeless message. Then he says in verse number four, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets preached. Now, it's really interesting when he's speaking of those former prophets, who, who is he speaking of? 
those prophets that we've been studying over the last year or so. Uh, uh, Isaiah, we hadn't studied Isaiah and Jeremiah, but uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, those prophets, those are the prophets that Habakkuk, he says, those are the former prophets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, turn now from your evil ways and your evil days. That's that was the message of those prophets. But they did not hear nor heed me when the prophet spoke, says the Lord. Your fathers, and then he asked them to ponder this. Ponder the situation. Your fathers, where are they? Where are their fathers? Where were their fathers at this point in time? They were buried. They were dead, but more significantly, where were they buried? They were buried in Babylon. You know, to a Jew, there would be nothing more horrific than to be buried in a pagan hostile land. They wanted to be buried. I mean, remember Joseph, he wanted... He wanted to be buried in Israel. Jacob wanted to be buried in Israel. They all wanted to be buried in Israel because one day they knew that they would be resurrected in the resurrection and, and they wanted to be resurrected in Israel. And so, so they wanted to be there. And so he says, you know, your fathers, it really, he's almost indicating here that they, they, they were lost. They were lost forever because they were buried in a foreign land. And the prophets, do they live forever? No, those prophets are gone. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos and all of those prophets that spoke to your father, they're gone. But what about their words? Were they gone? No. Yet surely my words and my statues, uh, which I commanded my servants and prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? I mean, did they, did, didn't what they say come true? Because even though they were dead at some point, the word of God wasn't dead. Over in Isaiah 40, you know that great passage of the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endureth forever. And so uh, uh, they, you know, uh, what, what they spoke is still in effect. You know what? It's, that's why everybody in the church needs to study the minor prophets because that same word that was spoken to Israel before they went into captivity still lives on today. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that, that same word endures all the way to the 21st century, not just to the remnant of Israel who came back into the land. It endures to us too. That just what we just read, you know, return to, to me and I will return to you. That is an everlasting word. Uh, you know, forsake me for idols and, and you're going to pay the piper. That's an everlasting word. We heard that over and over again in the prophets and that applies every bit as much to America as it did to Israel. It applies every, much to every individual Christian in America as it, as it did to those supposedly godly people in Israel. So they were returned and said, just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us. I mean, 70 years you'd be in captivity and then, you know, it would be over. According to your ways, according to our deeds, he has dealt with us. And that's the way God always deals. He hasn't changed the way he deals with people. What you sow is what you reap. You sow to the kingdom of God, you'll reap the things of the kingdom of God. You sow to this world and you'll reap the things, the bad things of this world and you'll reap the wrath of God. And so uh, he's given them this message that, hey, this is why your fathers went into captivity and if you don't repent, you're going to, you're going to, you know, something as bad or worse is going to happen to you. Not necessarily you're going to go into captivity, 
but something bad is going to happen in your life. All right. So, on verse number 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, just uh, a few months later, uh, three months later to be exact, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. Now, this is the first of eight visions that Zechariah is going to have. We're going to see eight visions that the Lord's going to give him. Uh, and the first one we're going to see is the, some people call it the visions of the horses. Some call it the vision of the man in the myrtle trees. Some separate this into two visions. The visions of, vision of the horses and the vision of the craftsmen. Uh, personally, I think it's one vision. And I'm going to show you why as we get into this. Now, let me say this, and I hate to say this. But I hate to admit this, but these are going to be really hard to interpret. These visions are very hard to interpret. And I'm going to give you, I'm not going to sit and go over every interpretation that you can read about in various commentaries and stuff. I'm going to give you what I think the interpretation of this vision is. And then if you come up with a different interpretation, you don't even have to call me about it. Just, just if you like it better, you know. Uh, the gist, the, the message is going to be the same regardless of how you interpret the vision because they, the message is going to be given to us. But exactly who the characters are and exactly what's happening in the vision, I'm going to tell you what I think it is and I'm not going to waste our time going through all the various possibilities of what other people say it is. And, and I definitely don't want to get any kind of allegorical commentary on this like a lot of people do. I think the message is pretty clear, but, but I know the message is clear, but I think even maybe the details, we won't be too far off as we take a shot at interpreting these visions. But again, as we go into these visions, I don't want you to say, well, you ain't, you know, I don't believe what the pastor said about that. Well, keep it to yourself if you don't believe it. You might be right. I'm not going to argue with you All right, on that because I, cause, cause I'm I'm going to try to get the closest interpretation of what I think is right, and then if you can come up with a different one, go for it. All right, now, uh, let's look at this first vision. And I'm just going to read the whole vision, and then, then we'll try to figure it out. He says, I saw by night. Now, by night kind of symbolizes what? Darkness, a period of darkness, okay? So he says, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow down in the valley. And behind him were horses. And I believe these definitely are symbolic of something. Red. Now we can probably figure out real quickly what red signifies. Throughout the Bible, what does it signify? Blood. So it's got something to do with blood. And then sorrel is spotted. And then there's white. Then I said, my Lord. Now when he's speaking to the Lord, he's more than likely speaking to the Lord, right? So he says, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who walked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord Jehovah has sent to walk. You know, he, when he says the ones, he's talking about these horses. These horses are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. So they answered the so they answered, the horses spoke 
to the angel of the Lord who was among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, at this point, all the earth is resting quietly. So what's the vision about? Well, to figure out the vision, you got to figure out the characters. Now, if you look at this thing, there's a man at night who gets off, who's riding a red horse. There's a man uh, that Zechariah speaks to. He asks him a question, my Lord, who are these? And then there's an angel who talked with me and said, I will show you. And then there's a man who stood among the myrtle trees and says, these are the ones whom Jehovah has sent to walk to and throw through the earth. And then there's the angel of the Lord. So you, it looks like you've got a lot of characters, but there's not a lot of characters here. There's only one man, and this is my interpretation. There's only one man among the myrtle trees, and that's none other than the man, Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, who is the angel of the Lord. Now let's put this in a historical setting. What's happened? Babylon, Babylon's come down and they've destroyed Israel. And they've shed all sorts of blood. Makes sense that he would come riding in on a red horse, right? He comes riding in on a red horse, but he gets off of that horse. Because there's been this war between Babylon and Persia, and a lot of blood was shed in that war. But now that war is over, so the angel of the Lord who's riding this horse, this blood-red horse, gets off of that horse, signifying that the bloodshed is over. That's the way I see that. Now this reminds me of Lot. It's a, it's a little bit different in, in colors and in, in the number, but it reminds me of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Who's in charge of those four horsemen that go out into the world and reap havoc during the great tribulation? The Lord himself. And so this is kind of a, a precursor to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we see the rider, the rider is none other than the angel of the Lord. He gets off of the horse, Zechariah sees him in the vision, and then he asks him, my Lord, what are these horses for? What do, they, what do they stand for? And he says, I will show you what they are. They're the ones who have ridden through the earth. But now there's not a rider on the horses. So you've got a red horse, which represents bloodshed. You've got a sorrel horse, a spotted horse, which I believe represents bloodshed in parts of the world and then peace and victory in the other parts of the world. And then white in scripture often represents victory. And so I believe the Persians have had their victory over the Babylonians. The Babylonians had their victory over the Israelites. And so the white horse isn't riding, the sorrel horse isn't riding, and the red horse isn't riding. And so there's no war on earth. It's almost if there's peace on earth at this point. And so Jesus is off the horses and he's not riding any horse throughout the world. And, and, and if you read that last verse, he says, so the, he, they answered, the horses answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we've walked to and fro through the earth, but we're done with our business for now. And behold, the earth is resting quietly. Makes sense? So there's peace at this point. So Jesus is not on one of these horses causing war, causing disaster, uh, causing one nation to have victory over another nation. They're resting peacefully. 
peacefully. And that's the message that he's giving to these, this remnant of Israelites. You've got a time of peace, a time when you can do great things for the kingdom of God and not be at war like your forefathers were at war. So you're, you're, you're entering into a time when the earth is resting quietly. Now, is that going to last forever? No. That'll only last forever when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes to this earth and then we will rest quietly for a thousand years. There'll be another war and then we will go into eternity and we will rest quietly forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. All right, now, the next, the next part of this vision, some would call this the second vision. I say it's the next part of the vision and let me show you why. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, or said, really, he made a comment and said, O Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? These 70 years, I mean, when is your anger going to end? I mean, when are you going to back off and let Israel rebuild? And the answer to that is now. Because the earth is resting quietly. And so the Lord answered with the angel who talked with him with good and comforting words. Good. There's, this, is a, this is a good message. This isn't a terrible message. This is a, this is a good message. A comforting message. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, we, here we have the Father. We, we see two parts of the Trinity working here. We have the Father, the Lord of hosts, speaking through the Son, okay, who it happens to be the Lord of hosts himself, too. But, but he's, this is why you're getting two, two parties here. He says, listen to what he says, he, and this is his message. I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. In other words... I allowed the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem, but that doesn't mean I don't love Jerusalem. I love Jerusalem, the Lord says, more than any other city on this earth. Well, Lord, if you love the city more than any other city on this earth, why would you destroy the city? Well, he's going to explain that to us in a minute. If you have the King James, and I really almost like the King James translation here better, the Lord says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem. And for Zion with great jealousy. In other words, I love Jerusalem and I'm jealous for Jerusalem. Why is the Lord jealous for Jerusalem? We'll go to Psalms, back up to the Psalms. Go to Psalms number 132. Psalms 132, everybody there? Listen to what he says. Look at verse 13. For the Lord Jehovah has chosen Zion. What's Zion? Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place for how long? Forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I mean, you read through Revelation. We'll see that as we go through Revelation, as we finish up in a few years. As we go through Revelation... Uh, you see how this transpires. We go into the millennium and then there's this rebellion at the end of the millennium. And then we go into this everlasting peace with a new heaven and a new earth. But where does God live? 
Where does he dwell? He dwells in Jerusalem on this earth. And his brightness is so bright that there's no need for the sun. That's how wonderful it will be in eternity. And that's what we have to look forward to. So going back to, to our passage in Zechariah, he says, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. And then he adds a comment here. I mean, just because I use Babylon and just because I'm going to use Persia to, and, uh, to do my bidding in Jerusalem and to discipline the Jews doesn't mean that I'm pleased with them. They're my tools, but I'm not pleased with them. Listen to what he says in verse 15. He said, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. These nations now they're at rest. Uh, I'm mad at them uh, for I was a little angry uh, at you and they helped me discipline you, but they did it not for good reasons. I had good reasons. They did it with an evil intent. You know, the Babylonians didn't come down and, and, and destroy Israel and destroy the temple and destroy Jerusalem because, because they thought they were doing Jehovah's bidding. They did it because they were an evil people. But they were being used by God. The Persians the same way. The Persians came down and destroyed the Babylonians and did damage to the city themselves. But they didn't do it. They were, they were a tool in God's hand, but they didn't do it because they loved the Lord. They did it because they had evil intent. And that's what he's saying right there. All right, now, he comes back to this vision. He says, therefore, says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. During this time period, I'm coming back with mercy. Eventually, he's going to come back with great mercy because he's going to live here and rule and reign here. And he says, my house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. And that's your job right now, Israelites. Your job is to build Zerubbabel's temple. That's your job because even though it doesn't have the glory of Solomon's temple, uh, it is my dwelling place. And good things are going to happen as you build this temple. The city's going to be revived and you're going to prosper. That's what he's telling them. And you'll see a surveyor's line being stretched, not just over the temple, but all over Jerusalem. And then he says in verse number 17, again proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out out through prosperity and the Lord again uh, comfort Zion and I will again choose Jerusalem. So there's Jerusalem has this periodic history and eventually uh, an ultimate history where God will rule and reign uh, on, on this earth. And so he's telling them, Hey, be encouraged. You're a big part of my plan. And so get back to rebuilding uh, the, the, the temple and rebuilding Jerusalem. And now he comes back to the vision. Uh, here's the vision, uh, the vision of the, the uh, horns and the vision of the craftsmen. Now, before we get into that vision, we, all, we went through Daniel. What did the horns represent? They represent empires. So we're already familiar with this. This, this one we don't have to worry about translating. The horns represent empires that God uses to do his bidding. So in verse number 18, then I raised my eyes and looked and how many horns were there? Same thing Daniel said. There were four horns. Who were those four horns? You, you remember who the four horns were that, that came through? Empires that, that, that uh, uh, trodden down Jerusalem? What empires were they? It was Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so he's speaking of those four horns. 
He says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And so he answered, These are the horns. And when you think of a horn, uh, you know, he's not talking about the horn you blow. He's talking about the horn on a, on a, on a ram or a bull that does damage, that, that, that harms things and harms people. And so he's using these, things, these horns in the context of them doing harm to Jerusalem and doing harm to the people of Israel. Well, why would God do that? Yeah, that's why I say these visions go together. You'll see that in just a minute. He said, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. But then now the Lord in this, I think, the same vision. And if you separate the visions, you've got to come up with an entirely different <laughs> translation or dire different meaning to what the vision means. And I, I think the meaning is pretty clear. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Now you got the horns that are destroying Jerusalem. What do craftsmen do? Build things back up. And so he, he says, the Lord showed me four craftsmen and said, what are these coming to do? And he says, these are the horns that scattered Judah and that no one could lift up his head. But these are the horns. So the craftsmen are also the horns. And, and the craftsmen are coming, the ones that are going to build are coming to destroy the previous horn. You following what he's saying right there? And if you look at the history, that's exactly what happened to all of these empires. One empire would come in and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And then another empire would come in who would destroy that horn, but then they would be the craftsmen who would be responsible for rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. A case in point, Darius himself. Darius was, Babylon came in as a horn to destroy uh, the Israelites. And in a way, you know, if, if that horn was just, there wasn't a craftsman involved in that situation, they would have totally wiped out the nation of Israel. But God was in the midst of that. And then he actually used Nebuchadnezzar to build back the nation of Israel in captivity. And then along comes the Medes and Persians, and they attack Babylon, who had destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And they just did some destruction to it too and their attack because uh, the Babylonians had built it back up and then they went back in and destroyed it again. But they come back in and they're the craftsmen who allow the Israelites to go back in and they actually help them. They give them, they give them tools, they give them money, they give them weapons, they give them the materials to rebuild the, the temple and rebuild the city. So you see how the vision's playing out right there? So he says, and, and he said to these what are these coming to do? These are the horns that scatter Judah so that no one could lift up his head. But the craftsmen are coming to ter terrify them. But they're craftsmen. They're going to build things back up to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. And the reason they're called craftsmen is because not only are they going to push out that previous horn, they're going to come in and they're going to rebuild the, the nation. That's what the Romans did. The Romans were the ones who allowed Herod to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the, the temple, the greatest temple, even greater than Solomon's temple. So you see the vision? He's giving them good news. Hey, all of this is going to happen, but, but it's going to happen by, with my direction, and it's going to happen for 
for my good purposes. Now, there's a great spiritual lesson hidden here in this vision. I don't know if you've caught it yet or not. But all of us, who are we? We are the temple of God. We're the temple of God. And when we profane that temple, like the Israelites profane their temple, God comes in with a horn. He comes in with trials and he comes in with trouble. But he doesn't come in with that trouble to utterly destroy us. He comes into that with that horn to get our attention so that he can rebuild us and make us stronger and stronger and more like Jesus Christ. So there's a great spiritual lesson hidden in that little vision and that lesson he's trying to give to these Israelites. Now, you want to go find a better interpretation than that, good luck. <laughs> you might can. Let me, don't let me know if you do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We, no matter how you interpret this vision exactly, Lord, I can't be sure. None of us can be sure that we see you if we even remember to ask that. But, but, Lord, we do get the message. The message is that you're in control. You're in control of your dwelling place. Your holy temple. Your holy temple, Lord, where you will dwell in, in the bodily form of Jesus Christ, Lord, is Jerusalem. But the temple where your spirit dwells now, Lord, we know is in our own personal hearts and souls. And Lord, we know that, 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 that it's the same message that Paul gave us in Romans chapter 8, Lord, that all the things that are going on in our life, even those horns that, that seem to come at us and do us harm and almost seem to destroy us, Lord, are only there to, to build us back up. Lord, you're the master craftsman. And you've got a great plan for each and every person in this room for not only the future we have in this life in which we live now, but, but uh, for the future uh, of eternity, Lord. And we're just so blessed to be part of your kingdom. Lord, help us to take all of this seriously. Help us to, 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 to be in a position, Lord, where we turn to you in a way that you don't have to use horns to prod us to do the right thing. You don't have to knock us down to build us up, Lord, that we're simply built up by the Spirit by being present or closely living closely in your presence. Lord, we just thank you for that opportunity to live like that. Lord, we, we, we just ask you to, to, to give us the grace to be who you want us to be. We know you're going to get us there, Lord. You, we know in the end, well, the easy way or the hard way, we're going to be like Jesus Christ when he comes. We thank you for these great promises, and we thank you for your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.